Hello, welcome back to Sports Waves. Paxton Ritchie here alongside Carl Winter. And on this week's episode, we're doing it a little differently. Normally, we have a guest for the second half of the show. This time, he's already here to do the entire show with us. Got Austin Hall in the building. Austin Hall's a staff writer at the graphic. He does our NFL picks with us. And uh, he's, he's ready to talk all kinds of sports with us for the next next half hour. So Austin, thank you for being here. Of course, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the, the big breaking news that is affecting the NFL is uh, the first round of COVID positives with the Titans. One game has been postponed. So far, that's it. But how big of a deal is this for the season? And are we worried about this derailing the season? I don't think that it's that it's going to derail the season. I think that it's just because none of the Vikings players have tested positive for the Titans opponent this past week. And, and the Titans have been able to, to keep it limited and they've closed their facility, been able to sanitize it. And obviously these players are able to get tested every day. The problem is that with the NFL, that it's just so difficult to, you know, reschedule or postpone games or, and there's just no real good options. So the NFL thought about, you know, moving to the the game to the, one of the team's bye weeks, but I think the Steelers and Titans um, have different bye weeks or, you know, if you make the Titans forfeit, that's not really fair to anyone involved just because of coronavirus, but also it's, yeah, there's just no really good option. So now we're looking at the NFL saying this game will be played either Monday or Tuesday. So just postponed a day or two. Um, But the Titans, I believe don't have access to their facility all week. So, or until Saturday, I think is when they're going to be able to come back. Which, which seems strange to me. I, I feel like they could sanitize the facility and the players who tested negative could practice, but they're going to be playing the Steelers Monday or Tuesday, it looks like, without practicing in their facility for the entire week. Uh, so really just not any good options for the NFL to go with. Yeah, no question. This is going to be a scheduling headache. Um, and for the NFL especially, I, I feel like it's a sport where you need you need at least, you know, the five, six, seven days of prep. It's not just preparation time. That's what the offseason is for. And in this case scenario, they didn't have a, bit, a huge preparation in the offseason. You, you need that five or six, seven days to heal. You need your, your starters to get back. You need to call guys up from the practice squad. And so not, you know, if you have a, a nice break of 10 days because you're having to push this game back, what does that mean for the next week? You're going to have a four or five day turnaround. And what if you're playing a Thursday night football game this year? Then that means you're going to have another four or five day turnaround later this season. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a, of a scheduling, a, a huge scheduling headache. And the only other thing that really concerns me is if the team isn't meeting consistently like they would be. And I'm not saying, you know, NFL, you know, when, when they're in season, NFL teams don't do padded, padded practices, full contact every day, but they do have a lot of install a lot of position meetings and things like that and so when you take that away it's going to lead to a a little bit of a, a a sloppier product on the field which is better than not having football at all but I think you know there's going to be a lot of penalties there's going to be a lot of blown assignments probably a lot more points so it's it's definitely going to be a little bit of a different product but hopefully the NFL can can figure it out especially the Titans. It seems to me that this is kind of what this moment was built for with the extended practice squads. I mean, shouldn't the idea be that if the if the Titans have four positive tests, you you take a day to make sure everybody else is negative, and then you just kick those guys out and, and bring up guys from the practice squad. I know one of the positive Titans is the long snapper, who's kind of a sneaky, difficult position to replace. Uh, but it, it sort of seems like that 
all the changes that the NFL made to roster construction were kind of built for this moment and, and we're kind of going to see the test of how well it works and how feasible it is. Yeah, I guess for me, I just don't understand why with a positive test on Tuesday, you have to close the facility until Saturday. And let there's science behind when you're ex- possibly exposed to COVID, you have to wait four or five days before you know a test result is accurate. I'm not sure if that's what they're going off of, but it just seems like how much can you work from home and you can have meetings, you can prepare film and such, but if they're not able to take the field till Saturday and have to play again Monday or Tuesday, And obviously the good news in this situation is that the Vikings played the Titans last Sunday. No positive tests yet for Minnesota. So at least we hope that that this will be relatively contained. The MLB playoffs uh, are underway. We just saw two teams make the playoffs, the Cardinals and the Marlins, who had weeks-long layoffs due to covid the Cardinals had to play, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like, it was like 47 games in 39 days or something crazy like that. And they were still able to make the playoffs. So there is some hope that even if the Titans or any other team that, that comes down with a COVID outbreak has a couple short weeks along the way that you can still kind of piece together the season and, and still be a contending team, even if, uh, as we know, this season is going to be unlike any other in history, just like it has been with every sport. I, th- I thought beginning the MLB season, especially when the Marlins and the Cardinals had their outbreaks, like this thing's either going to bear- not even make it 10 games or it's going to make it all the way through. And now they made it all the way through their 60-game schedule. Obviously, in the MLB, you can schedule doubleheaders, a bunch of them, which is what they had to do with the Cardinals and the Marlins. And in the you know the NFL, you can't just you, – it's it's a lot more difficult to move game. And this past NFL week, you know, it had a little bit of everything. It felt it felt almost normal with, you know, you've got blown leads, you've got controversial calls, you've got, you know, a tie. So I, I feel like week three felt the most normal of any of any week we've had so far. Absolutely. So uh Austin, we'll we'll start with you and then we'll go to Carl. What's what's the game from week three that kind of stood out to you as, as the game of the week for whatever reason? The, the easy answer for me is the Chiefs Ravens game, you know, possibly a preview of the AFC championship. I know that's what everyone's saying. It wouldn't surprise me if that did happen, but I'm just so impressed with the game plan from Andy Reid. watching the charger game, the Chiefs charger game that they, that they almost blew the week before I was, it felt like I was watching a different team. It felt like I was, you know, watching like like a Big Ten, like a Big Ten offense in college in college football with the Chiefs, because I was just I was just shocked that their play calling, they weren't running the ball, they weren't um, just embarrassing teams off of play action like they do so well. And I and the whole time I'm just thinking like, what's going on? Like I know the Chargers have some good players, but I, I didn't really know what to make of it. And then you know having a good feeling that Mahomes, if he were to have a bad game against the Ravens, I don't know if he's ever had a, a bad two game stretch like that. So thinking that he, he's going to get the better of, you know, Lamar Jackson, who is the number one overall player in the the NFL top 100 players of last year, whereas Mahomes was number four, that along with some other things being bulletin board material. But the play, the game plan from Andy Reid was unbelievable. He got so many different guys involved. You know, he was getting the balls to fullbacks, getting it to his left tackle, you know, getting McCole Harmon going on double moves. Tyreek Hill just embarrassing dudes over the top it was a it was a perfect game five total touchdowns for Patrick Mahomes defense looked defense looked really really good too so you know it's it was a Monday night game you know possibly that the future AFC championship so pretty easy bet going with that but the Chiefs are no Super Bowl hangover no trouble in paradise they're picking up right where they left off and they look scary Austin it's it's worth mentioning that in our NFL picks that we do at the graphic which if you haven't read those articles you need to check them out go to Pepperdine 
dashgraphic.com. Read those NFL picks articles. It's one of the most fun things we do every week. But you and I were the only two out of the six to pick the Chiefs in that game. Yes, and I was on the fence. And then I, and then I was feeling good, and then the game started, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling really good about this pick. I like it. Carl, what was the game that stood out to you? You know, I, well, that, the, the right answer is the Ravens and the Chiefs because those are arguably the two best teams in the league. And the wrong answer that I'd love to say is the Falcons and the Bears, but it was just more the same of the Falcons, you know, collapsing epically um, and the Bears bringing in Nick Foles and him having a heroic performance. Um, but the other matchup of unbeaten teams was, was the Bills and the Rams, which was a really intriguing game. The Bills blew a massive 28-3 to lead and then were able to pull it out at the end with – there was a controversial pass interference call there at the end, but I think it kind of validated both teams a little bit. It validated Josh Allen played well, then he turned it over twice in the second half to spark that comeback, um, but then he leads them on the game-winning drive at the very end, and they get you know a key victory at home. But the Rams, I mean, we didn't have a, none of the three of us, I don't think, had a lot of faith in the Rams coming into this season, and you know they've shown that they with Sean McVay and some of the weapons they still have on offense, their receiving core looks great. Cooper Cup and Robert Woods are legitimate. Jared Goff has been playing pretty well. I know we aren't entirely sold on them, but it was a really intriguing game. Between the two of you guys, you guys covered the three games that I had in mind to bring up. Uh, I, I think you guys really hit it on what the best games of the week were. And I agree with you, Carl, that the Bills and the Rams both really legitimized themselves with that performance. The Rams with hanging what, with what most people thought would be a better team and coming back from that lead, but the Bills having the presence of mind to finish the game even after losing that lead. And the Falcons-Bears game was just crazy. And I do think we need to touch on it a little bit because if you're the Atlanta Falcons, you have now gone two consecutive weeks where you had a 98% chance to win the football game in the second half and you blew the lead two weeks in a row. If you're on that team and in that locker room and on that practice field this week, where do you even go from here? How do you pick yourself up? after two straight weeks of, of just utter demoralization and not even being able to believe what's happening. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, Doc Rivers doesn't have a job right now, but Dan Quinn does. I didn't think I'd be saying that in 2020, but that's kind of the reality we're living with right now. I think, I think it boils down to coaching. You know, you could blame it on the defense. You could blame it on Matt Ryan. But, you know, the, the ghost of Kyle Shanahan still kind of haunts that stadium. I think it starts with, you know, from with Dan Quinn and I, I do like the guy even though he's he's a defensive coach and I do love defense but you know the coaching landscape in the NFL and college as, as well it's changing you know people are looking for you know young intuitive sort of hot shot play callers not necessarily a CEO of a team like a Belichick or a Dan Quinn not to compare the two but I, I think a lot of it boils down to coaching I mean you have to finish offense, defense, special teams. If, if literally just in in that fourth quarter, if any of those those parts of the team were, were able to step up and hold their weight and sort of steal one play from the Bears who were storming back, they would have won it. But for the second time, it didn't happen. In this game, they they had an interception and a three and out, and they were still leading by 15 plus in the fourth quarter for the second week in a row. They're the first team ever to blow it two 15 point fourth quarter leads in a season. They did it twice in two consecutive weeks it's just hard and their their players are kind of just like well it can't get any worse than this the craziest part for me is that if any team in the nfl blew 20 point second half leads in back-to-back weeks it'd be a news story we'd be talking about it 
But it's not just any team. It's the Atlanta Falcons, whose most famous moment in their history is blowing a 25-point lead in the Super Bowl, where they did the same thing. They went ultra-conservative on offense. They barely tried to extend the lead, and their defense couldn't make a stop in that game either. And the same coaching staff is in place. Uh, It's just crazy that we're still having these same issues with the same team all these years later. Yeah, I wonder if the – whoever makes the probabilities, the mathematical algorithm takes into account that it's the Falcons uh, that's playing. I'm sure it doesn't, but maybe it should, and they shouldn't be giving them 98% chances to win in the fourth quarter. We've seen every NFL team play three games so far, and some have gotten out to great starts and some have not. Maybe aside from the Falcons, since we've talked about them already, what team are you most worried about after the first three games of the season? I think it's got to be the Washington football team. In week one, I think that victory against – a comeback victory against the Eagles, which still has a good roster, I thought it was a fantastic win. Haskins looked good, that defensive line, five first-rounders along the, along the defensive front, which is unheard of in the NFL. But it was like, oh, my goodness, like, could they contend for this division that's – honestly been up for grabs for it seems like for for about four or five years now and then everything since then has just fallen by the wayside I mean you know we with it you look at a team like the Jets it's like we know what we're getting out of the Jets I, I haven't been surprised by anything the Jets have done this year but with the football team having such a good week one and then now it's like Dwayne Haskins is already in talks about being replaced and whenever I hear you know things about like Dwayne Haskins being replaced and Sam Donald being replaced I think like man like what happened 10 years ago when a quarterback of any age could play a bad game or have a two or three game stretch and people not talk about him being replaced in the draft next year? It's just, it's, it's just funny how, how far we've come, but it's not working. I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if a lot of it falls on the offense. I don't know if a lot of it falls on Rivera. They have talent, but um, they're, they're not a dumpster fire, but they're in trouble. There's no question about it. Yeah, and I could bring up a, a number of, like, 0-3 teams right here. But I'm a little bit worried about the New Orleans Saints right now. I, you know, as good as they looked in week one and coming into the season, you think they're going to be a Super Bowl contender again. But then they kind of get taken apart by the Raiders offense in Vegas. And then they get taken apart by Aaron Rodgers. To be fair, Rodgers is on fire. But the Saints, Breeze just hasn't looked great at all. And, and it's partly because Mike Thomas is out but they've just become, it seems like they've become a little bit predictable. And when their defense can't stop anybody and, and you're relying on this offense to, you know, play from behind and, and win in a shootout every time, I've just lost a lot of confidence on the Saints in the past two weeks. And I think they're going to need to, you know, destroy the Lions this week and get a couple of key wins under their belt for me to regain that confidence in them. I got to start going ahead of Carl when we do this because he always takes my ideas. I'm, I'm really worried about the Saints too, but I will mention some of the 0-3 teams you didn't. I think you have to look at the Minnesota Vikings as a team that is in a lot of trouble because they dropped a couple winnable games early on in their schedule and they don't have a lot of winnable games moving forward. Obviously, a Packers loss in week one isn't the worst thing in the world, but getting annihilated by an Indianapolis Colts team that really has a definite ceiling as a roster, and then uh, losing a close game to the Tennessee Titans, that was a game that they really needed. Because uh, when you look at the next two games on their schedule. They, they play the Houston Texans, who are another 0-3 team, purely based on schedule, who are very talented and are going to be motivated for a win. And in week five, they've got the Seattle Seahawks at CenturyLink Field in prime time. In other words, what Kirk Cousins has nightmares about. So 
it's not looking good for Minnesota. They're staring 0-5 down the barrel. They've got a, a, a sneaky good division with the Packers looking strong, the Bears still undefeated, and uh, even the Lions showing they can at least hang with teams even if they collapse at the end usually. So I think it's going to be tough sledding for the Vikings all season, and I think they missed a key opportunity. But uh, we can move on now to the NBA Finals, which are starting tonight. One team, the Los Angeles Lakers, we all thought would be, if not there, at least in the mix, a leading contender. The other team, the Miami Heat, kind of came out of nowhere. They're the five seed in the East. They unseeded three higher-seeded teams on their path to the Finals. And uh, not only is it a, a difference in play style, but it's a difference in team culture, team philosophy, a lot of interesting things to unpack in this matchup. Yeah, no question. First of all, I, I say hats off to Eric Spolstra. I mean, you know, you want to talk about the job he's done this season, you know, to me, I, I never thought he was, I never thought he was a bad coach by any stretch, but it was always, he, he was always in the right place at the right time, um, you know, with the previous sort of heat dynasty, but what he's done with this team, when, when Jimmy Butler went to the heat, I, I kind of thought that was a, you know, sort of a, a nothing transition. I mean, he, he wasn't doing it solely based off money. And to me, I didn't think I thought the heat were close, but definitely not a contender. And now it's all come together. I think the thing that's sticking out to me the most is um, who's going to be the last five on the court for both sides. I know the Lakers really, really tried to expose the Nuggets with, with going big and staying big. Obviously, they're going to have Anthony Davis in the game for the majority of the time, but also keeping JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard fresh. You know, are they going to try and pound and bang down low with the Heat a little bit? Because the Heat lineup is in big stretches. They're pretty small. The speed advantage will definitely be with the Heat, but it might cause some problems if JaVale and Dwight Howard are playing well offensively and, and getting involved in the screen and roll. I'm so excited to see the matchups between, you know, not just the starters, but Caruso against a guy like you know, Tyler Hero, Kyle Kuzma coming off the bench, being probably being defended by Andre Iguodala. I'm fascinated to see the matchups because I think the Heat match up to the Lakers so much better than the Bucks and the Celtics do. Yeah, you made a lot of really good points there that I wanted to touch on as well. Outside of LeBron and Anthony Davis, they don't, they don't have like these these shooters like Harrow and, and Duncan Robinson that the Heat have. And you made a good point about the coaching. They might have the edge in coaching as well as Spolster's experience. I think the Lakers have a good advantage with experience, just having so many veterans and, and having LeBron. And these guys like Robinson and Harrow are going to have to rise to the moment and kind of shoot the lights out to keep the Heat in the game. Dwight Howard is an intriguing piece, how much he's going to play. I think he's going to actually have to play a pretty big role like he did in the conference finals some guys are going to have to step up for the Lakers but I think experience gives the edge to Los Angeles with obviously LeBron and Anthony Davis are pretty hard to stock together but the Heat are a really intriguing team and, I, and you also mentioned the matchup I think they match up reasonably well with having Butler being able to defend LeBron and Adebayo being able to defend Anthony Davis without a doubt I mean uh, the, the Lakers certainly go in as the favorites they're going to have a lot of experience they've assembled these veterans that know how to win and have gone on deep playoffs runs. The one thing, aside from all the, the basketball things and the X's and O's, I'm 21 years old. I believe you guys are both 20. And there are players averaging over 20 in the Eastern Conference Finals that are younger than us. And I don't know how I feel about that. Depressing. It's depressing to say the least. Yeah, and, and speaking of youth, well, Harrow, if, if Miami somehow wins the title, Harrow won't even be able to drink any champagne when they're celebrating. But another young guy that we haven't mentioned yet is Kuzma, and, and Kuzma hasn't really had as big of a role, obviously, with 
AD being in the lineup, but I think there might be like one game here where he's going to need to be put up, you know, 25 or something or at least 20. Cause he, he had some big games when they had the younger roster, like Kyle Kuzma dropping 30 was not that rare of an occurrence. I think he's kind of faded back in the shadows a little bit this year. So he might be one of the Lakers role players who, you know, has to step up in, in one game in this finals interested to see what we get from him. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see what we get from Kuzma because he, like you said, Carl, he did fade into the background when first LeBron and then especially AD came into the team. And the role that he's found the most success is kind of leading the bench unit and kind of coming off the bench and being that spark plug scorer for the second unit. But in the NBA finals, rotations are smaller than ever, right? You're not going to have any meaningful minutes where three or four starters aren't on the floor. So is that a situation where Kyle Kuzma is going to excel? I think that's a fair question. And certainly the Lakers need a diversity of scoring options. The the Heat certainly will spread the ball around. The Lakers need to do the same to match that output, especially with the Heat's outside shooting. But I think it's fair to say who on that roster can step up and, and fill that hole. For all of the Lakers' depth and all of their experience and their defense and their situational awareness, they've got two guys on the team that everybody would want to get a bucket. But I, I don't know who that third option is going to be. Even in the close games in the Nuggets series, when LeBron is playing sort of a facilitator role, nobody wanted to take shots down the stretch for the Lakers. There was a fear, there was a stigma that because they're not LeBron or Anthony Davis, they didn't have a place. They didn't have a place to take the big shots. You know, like, you know, Danny Green is good for a couple big shots down the stretch, but he's never going to take over games. I think the same thing can be said for a guy like Kuzma, maybe Rondo. But with the Heat, you know, you feel comfortable with Duncan Robinson taking a shot, Dragic taking a shot, Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero. It's, it's not as top-heavy as the Lakers. And I think if they are able to bite, scratch, and claw this game into a Game 7 and either... LeBron or Anthony Davis is slightly out of offensive rhythm, that could be a huge development for the Heat. The Lakers culture is all about superstars, transcendent talents. You go all the way back, Wilt, Kareem, Magic, Kobe, now LeBron and AD. The Heat culture is about the team, hard work. This is a team that last season sent a player home from the preseason camp because he wasn't in shape. I mean, this is a team that preaches, put the work in, and and everybody on the team is going to grind this out. And that's why you have undrafted rookies and second-year players like Kendrick Nunn and, and Duncan Robinson who feel right at home in the big moments on the Miami Heat team. Before we move on to another sport, let's just get a prediction from everybody real quick. Lakers and six. Same thing. I got Lakers and six. And one last thing, I want to give a shout out to Gabe Vincent, who went to my high school, graduated a few years before me, started the season at our at our G League team in Stockton, the Stockton Kings, and now he's going to the NBA Finals as a member of the Miami Heat. So excited for him. The Lakers are the better team, and they are motivated. They're not taking it lightly. I think they will win the NBA Finals, and nobody in Malibu or LA will shut up for years. One sport we don't cover very much on this show is college football. We don't really talk about it a lot. We don't have college football at Pepperdine, of course. Uh, But Austin Hall is here with us, and he is a resident college football expert. Exactly. This This is my favorite thing to do. Now that he's here on Sports Waves, we can't pass up the opportunity to get his perspective on what is 
shaping up to be a very unique college football season. I think it's going really well. You know, the off season was a circus. Now that people have realized that it can be done, we're a month into it. Um, we've had a handful of games be postponed. You know, Notre Dame's not going to play for another two weeks or something like that. But other than that, it's been smooth. And the product on the field has been smooth as well. And now we're going to have to wait until October 23rd, 24th for the Big Ten. We're going to have to wait till November 6th for the Pac-12 to start playing games tentatively. And so because of that, it is a huge curveball for the college football playoff, especially with those two conferences that don't typically have huge impact if this college football playoff semifinals are on pace for early January, like we expect for 2021. They're going to be playing a five, maybe six game conference season before that. And, you know, while finding the top four teams is, it's fairly simple for the committee to discern who the four best teams are, especially, uh, especially in a longer average season. But with this playing, you know, you got the SEC playing 10, um, the Big Ten and the ACC playing 10 or 10 or 11 or so, and then the other two that are late to the party playing five, that's difficult. And so my biggest thing for the college football playoff season, I know a lot of people want there to be eight teams. There should not be eight teams. I, and I think last year is a great example of that. Not just, I mean, you obviously have Oklahoma getting boat race by LSU in the semifinal. Nobody wanted to watch that game, but you have the teams that were below them in the final college football playoff seedings. I mean, it's, it's an Oregon, it's a Baylor, it's a Wisconsin. If there's any year to experiment with the playoff, it's this. And I think that's with a 16 playoff where you give the number one and the number two team, which should be clear cut, whether it's, whether it's, I mean, probably going to be Clemson and whoever comes out of the SEC. So maybe Alabama, maybe, uh, maybe Florida, those teams will have a right to a first round by not just because they've looked so good, but because they played 10, 10, 11, 12 games. Whereas I think the number three can play the number six, the four can play the five, and then you let the cards fall where they may. I think that'll be the most fair, the most even, but I think if there's any year to at least experiment with a 16 playoff and a first and a first round buy for the number one and number two teams, it's this. Yeah, and there's there's a lot there, Austin. But just I'm surprised that we're going to have Pac-12 football this year. I didn't think that if any conference would hold out, it would be the Pac-12 because of how you know, restrictive those the states like California and Oregon and, and Washington have been regarding coronavirus. And it's going to be wild because if we're playing games in November, yet you know on Pepperdine's campus at least, I'm assuming it's the same at USC and UCLA players still aren't even able to use like indoor training and weights facilities. So I'm not sure. I'm guessing they can hold practice now at those schools, but, but it's just interesting with states and conferences being at different places in regards to COVID and, and how they're going to deal with the rankings with such teams playing such limited schedules. But one thing I wanted to ask you about Austin is if you've watched this at all, like what, what's happening with the big 12, they lose three games, the Sun Belt. And then Oklahoma loses at home to Kansas State. I mean, obviously, this is a different year, but uh, we talk a lot about the Pac-12 missing the playoffs, but the Big 12, things are, things are kind of ugly over there right now. I don't really think these issues are COVID-related or preparation-related, really. I think it all sort of boils down to what's been a little bit of an issue um, for a, a lot of teams outside the top five that we know, and, it's, and it, a lot of it is recruiting. They're just not getting the big bodies that they need to win games down the stretch. It's going to come down to players. And while I think, I think football is a sport where coaching is the most important, especially in-game adjustments and, and things like that. But the playing field is, it's going to come down to players, which I think is going to lead to not just a lot of upsets um, in the big 12, but I think there's going to be a lot of upsets elsewhere. Austin, you, you kind of talked about how they're already in the thick of conference season and we're just starting. Uh, I know there's been a little bit of interconference games, but 
really maybe one or two per team at the most. And these Pac-12 and, and Big Ten teams are n not going to have any. How do you make judgment calls in the rankings, whether it's the top four or the top six or even the top 25? How do you make those judgment calls when you lose the ability to see any of these teams play common opponents? You know, we know what a team's record might be in the SEC or the Big 12, but we know a lot less over what that means. Like if, if you're trying to, if you have, say, a 6-1 and one Pac-12 team or an 8-2 and two SEC team, or an eight and two ACC team where the records are just so off because of the number of games in the schedule, how hard is it going to be to compare those teams? It's going to be tough. And it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of eyeball tests. I would love to sit here and say all 41 are all 41 bowl games are going to come down to the wire, but that's not the case. And, and I think the order that we have in our heads about the conferences, SEC, big 10, probably Big 12, and then a toss-up between the Pac-12 and the ACC. Maybe the Pac-12 takes a, takes a firm step over the ACC this year, even with the acquisition of Notre Dame. I think our idea of the conferences is going to be pretty close, even with a shortened sort of makeshift, makeshift season. Yeah, and we haven't really mentioned the players much, so, but I just wanted to ask you, I mean, coming in, you, you think about the Heisman watch and Fields and, and Lawrence come to mind immediately, but then you got a – Trask from Florida, uh, Ellinger from Texas, you know, putting up video game numbers. And all of a sudden, K.J. Costello, the Stanford transfer in the air raid for Mike Leach in Mississippi State. He beats LSU. You know, I was excited about him at Stanford. I grew up a Stanford fan when, when we're talking college football. So who do you like, Austin, for the Heisman? Or, who, or is there anyone else looking at that, that could come into that picture later? If you're looking at the Heisman, definitely Costello put his name on the map with over 600 yards against DBU. Kyle Trask is a sort of more traditional SEC game manager. He's safe. He takes care of the ball. But at the same time, he can make some spectacular plays. I love Florida's roster. I think he's going to put up excellent numbers as well. A guy that's getting a lot of hype that I don't agree with as much. Part of the reason I think Miami's going to get killed by Clemson is Derek King. Uh, he's a little bit undersized. He, I think, right now he's favored. He has the number three. He has the number three odds to win the Heisman, which I just, I just don't agree with. Um, and I think he's going to get exposed more often than not. And then when you want to look at other guys below Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, a guy, a guy that we'll only, I think we'll only see him once this year because North Dakota State is playing only one game. And it's mostly because this guy, Trey Lance, he's a, he was a redshirt freshman last year. I think he had 40-something touchdowns and zero interceptions last year. He's 6'2", 225, also had 1,000 rushing yards at the quarterback position. And like I said, I think North Dakota State is playing one sort of – as of now, they're playing like one midseason game just so scouts can watch Lance one more time. If I were to name one more – there are a couple really good sophomores. I know Keaton, uh, Keaton Slovis put his name on the map, you know, are right down the road from us at USC, a three-star prospect. His offensive coordinator in high school, a team that went like three and seven when he was a senior was Kurt Warner, just because he was at like Desert Pines High School. He got a USC offer basically on accident. They were scouting another guy and their flight got, and these USC recruiters, their flight got delayed. And so they were stuck around Arizona for a day. And they were just making calls like, who do we look at? Like, we don't just want to sit around in our hotel all day. And they're like, check out this Slovis guy. You can talk to Kurt Warner. That's his offensive coordinator. They fell in love with the dude. Clay Helton called him and apparently gave him an offer on the spot. And if you were to look at maybe one more sophomore, if you guys haven't watched Sam Howell play, the dude is unbelievable. He's the, you might remember, he's the true freshman quarterback that almost beat Clemson uh, on the road last year. It came down to a two-point conversion that they 
barely missed, but this guy's unbelievable. He's about, he, he's, he has a very similar size and frame to Baker. He's about six foot, maybe 225 pounds, can move around a little bit in the pocket, but the dude can sling the rock. He's, he's got solid arm talent. And even though a couple of years ago, he would be knocked for his size, but you know, the recent NFL drafts have shown us that you can, you can be, you can be six foot, you can be under six foot. If you can throw the ball, you're going to, you can be drafted number one overall. Austin, what are some of the, obviously we know about, the Clemsons that are there every year. We know Alabama is at least going to be competitive. What are some teams kind of on the outside looking in that you could consider possibilities to crash the party and make a run for the playoffs or the title? I think there's going to be a lot of teams playing spoiler this year. There are a lot of teams that could wreck a season. And I think one of those is Tennessee. Uh, their head coach is former Alabama defensive coordinator Jeremy Pruitt. He's done an amazing, an amazing job at recruiting. His offensive line is four five-star players, and his center is a four-star transfer from Alabama where he used to coach. Their quarterback is a senior. He struggled for years in the SEC, but maybe he's finally coming to his own. Their defense has numbers. They got two backs. They have a couple decent receivers. They've got a, a tight end that could probably play on Sundays. They could definitely pay, play spoiler for an Alabama, a Georgia, a Florida maybe an Auburn that starts to pick up some steam. I wouldn't sleep on Oklahoma State. And it's better you get familiar with their offense now. They have a they have a really good quarterback named Spencer Sanders who started out the season pretty shaky, but I think he's really, he, I think he's still really, really good. And they have a legitimate first round wide receiver and maybe the best running back in the draft. His name is Chuba Hubbard. He's from Canada. He almost opted out of this year. I'm glad he came back, but the dude is unbelievable. He's got it all. He's got size. He's got power. He's got breakaway speed. And then the receiver on the outside, Tylen Wallace, he's sort of in like a golden Tate, Jerry Judy type mold of, of his playing style. But Oklahoma State's offense, I think they're going to score a lot of points and probably play spoiler for Oklahoma and maybe even Texas as well. But yeah, I'd say Oklahoma State and Tennessee right now are two teams that I think can really make some noise. Definitely will be a good thing to see college football on Saturdays. I mean, we've had a sprinkling of games that as we move on, going to be more and more an all-day event like we're used to seeing. Nobody I know knows more about it than Austin Hall. So thank you, Austin, for joining us and talking some college football. Of course, guys. I enjoyed it. For more info on this podcast and to hear about upcoming episodes, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at SportsWavesPod. And to keep up with the other podcasts, breaking news, and more from The Graphic, follow them on Twitter and Instagram, at PepGraphic, or visit Pepperdine-Graphic. Dot com.